Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, as you can see, visual testimony that overindulgence in ice cream and lobster does not, is not fatal. Went up to Connecticut last, last week. It was, I took the hot weather with me. It was 96 or 97 degrees, which is hot. It's not quite as humid. They think it's just terrible. But here where it's about, you know, ranges from about 95% in the morning to about 60%. There it ranges from about 80% down to about 45. So it's, it's humid, but it's not like, it's not, I mean, we get the grand prize for humidity here living in the swamp. So it was, it was great, and the ordination was great, and I'm going to give a report on Sunday morning when I ha- will have pictures by then so that you can uh, get an idea of how, how things went. But it was, uh, it was very good. We had a tremendous, tremendous weekend, and one of the members of the ordination council was Dr. Elliot Johnson. Elliot was a doctoral student. In fact, he got his... Ph.D. the same year that Charlie and George Meisinger got their THMs. So he was, they, they knew him back then, and Charlie hadn't seen Elliot since then. And he is one of the good guys up there at Dallas Seminary, really holding the line on uh, against the in, influence of progressive dispensationalism and several other things, and just a real solid guy. And he was really impressed with the, the depth of the ordination and all that went into preparation for it, and even having public, uh, the, the general public of this congregation, invited to witness the uh, questioning, because that, he said, I've been in a lot of ordinations, and they're all just, you know, back in the conference room somewhere, and the elders or deacons grill the, grill the pastor. But he thought that was a great idea to have the congregation out there, so he, he saw a few things he liked. Well, somebody sent me an email today that I've had this before, and I just thought it's rather amusing. I thought I would read it to you and just share the humor. has a lot to say about how things are interpreted today and how people read things the way they want to read things and shape things the way they want to shape things. Judy, who is a professional genealogical researcher, discovered that Hillary Clinton's great-great-uncle Remus Rodham, a fellow lacking in character, was hanged for horse-stealing and train robbery in Montana in 1889. The only known photograph of Remus shows him standing on the gallows. On the back of the picture is the inscription, quote, Remus Rodham, horse thief, sent to Montana Territorial Prison, 1885, Escaped 1887, robbed the Montana Flyer six times, caught by Pinkerton detectives, convicted and hanged in 1889. Judy emailed Hillary Clinton for comments. Hillary's staff of professional image adjusters cropped Remus's picture, scanned it, enlarged it, and edited it with image processing software so all it's seen is a headshot. The accompanying biographical sketch is as follows. Remus Rodham was a famous cowboy in the Montana Territory. His business empire grew to include acquisition of valuable equestrian assets and intimate dealings with Montana Railroad. 
Beginning in 1883, he devoted several years of his life to service at a government facility, finally taking leave to resume his dealings with the railroad. In 1887, he was a key player in a vital investigation run by the renowned Pinkerton Detective Agency. In 1889, Remus passed away during an important civic function held in his honor when the platform upon which he was standing collapsed. (laughs) I guess it's all how you look at things, right? Well, before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. I know just the mention of Hillary Clinton probably got half of you out of fellowship and may take five minutes to get you back in fellowship, but... Nevertheless, we will uh, have silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us. Your word is, uh, gives us everything that we need in order to understand reality, in order to understand our salvation, our Savior, our spiritual life today. Father, we know that there are so many things that bombard us with different ideas and different opinions that uh, sometimes it just seems overwhelming, but we are always anchored in the truth of your word, which calms us, steadies us, stabilizes us, and gives us uh, a sense of certainty. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. We might be strengthened and encouraged as those who received the uh, letter to the Hebrews initially were encouraged and strengthened. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight we're back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Somewhere along the way in my travels, I misplaced my regular pulpit glasses, so I'll be going back and forth with the uh, reading glasses. But we'll be um, back in Hebrews seven eleven. but as I started getting back into the flow of Hebrews chapter 7, I realized it was taking me a long time because it had been a little over two months, maybe three months, since we actually went through this, uh, the first part of Hebrews chapter 7. And I figured if it was taking me that long to get my head back into Hebrews 7, it would probably take you even longer. So I thought that we needed to have some review to reorient ourselves. What, what happened is that we hit those last couple of verses, 7, 9, 10, 11, that deal with, mostly 10 and 11, that deal with the fact that Levi paid tithes in Abraham's loins and how that verse was used as a proof text in many theologies for different positions. And so we took a little bit of a sidetrack down two major rabbit trails dealing with, one, the origin and transmission of the soul, and two, the origin and transmission of the sin nature. Now, I concluded the second part of those two series last week, and so we're back into our flow of Hebrews. So let's just take some time this this, uh, evening. I want to review, and as I was doing this and went back to the first chapter of Hebrews, I noticed certain uh, thematic elements that come into play in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 that were identified in the introduction, but now that we have studied through the first six and a half chapters and on the verge of getting into this next section, it all of a sudden stands out a little more as to what the writer was doing. Uh, Hebrews takes a number of different threads, as it were, 
threads of doctrine related to the person of Christ, related to his uh, sanctification in his humanity during the uh, time that he was on the earth, uh, certain threads related to his ascension and his present session at the right hand of the Father. The psalm that is quoted the most in Hebrews is Psalm 110. Psalm 110.1 is quoted two or three times. Psalm 110.4 is quoted two or three times, which are very important for understanding the doctrine of the ascension. And this doctrine is just embedded back there in the Old Testament. If you went back and just read Psalm 110, you might not on your own pick out all of the implications that the writer of Hebrews is picking out. And that's the way that doctrine progresses. Sometimes I'll use the phrase progress of doctrine. People don't know what that means. It doesn't mean, well, it can mean two things. That doctrine progresses in the scripture because you have progressive revelation. And so with, in the Old Testament, you have certain things revealed, certain things revealed in the Pentateuch, certain things revealed in the, in the prophets, uh, certain things revealed built on that when you get into the Gospels and more things built on top of that in the epistles. But once the canon is, is closed, you have another type of pro- progressive doctrine, and that is the progress of the church's understanding of doctrine, so that our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity today is far superior to the Apostle Paul's doctrine of the Trinity. Now, when I say that, some people kind of, wait a minute, he, he had the Holy Spirit, and he was inspired when he wrote all of that. He understood the Trinity, yes, but he didn't have the word Trinity. See, you have the word Trinity, and that encapsulates all that is taught there in that one vocabulary word, and he didn't have that. That was not coined until Tertullian coined it in the early part of the 3rd century. So with the development of vocabulary, the development of technical language to articulate the nuances of these doctrines, we who live 2,000 years later understand things that were only implicit in the minds of the apostles. And, and as they wrote these things, they did not understand the full import of everything, everything that they said. So let's just start with about three points of of a general introduction to Hebrews. First of all, we remember that Hebrews was written not so much as an epistle initially, but it bears the marks of having first been an oral message. It was a message of exhortation or challenge to challenge the Hebrew believers, these mostly former priests who had become Christians, with the need to stand fast in their Christian doctrine and Christian beliefs and not fall by the wayside and fade out and go back into uh, Judaism. And so the listener and or reader is challenged to respond to God's teaching and to stand fast and not fall away and give up rewards and inheritance. Second thing we see is the theme of Hebrews and that the writer of Hebrews draws out the implications of the Savior's session on the current sanctification of the saints and their future service in the kingdom. In other words, we've boiled it down to living today in light of eternity. That's what he's doing. He's drawing out the implications. What is Christ doing at the right hand of the Father today? Why is he doing it? Why is he there? What's, what are the implications of his high priestly ministry in relation to the uh, body of Christ, the church, and what 
does this have to do with our future destiny? All of that boiled down to living today in light of eternity. And then the third point of introduction is that the book of Hebrews is structured around five sections which contain a doctrinal exposition or a teaching point developing out something we already know about the person and work of Christ and then a section that is more of a challenge or application and within that challenge or application there's also a warning of the dangers of falling away or treating uh, doctrine lightly. So there's a strong challenge and warning to these believers at that time not to fall away, not to give up, because if they do, they jeopardize eternal rewards, not only temporal blessings, but also eternal rewards. Now, we've seen this outline before. We have the prelude, which is the first four verses. The emphasis on the prelude is on the God who speaks. And over and over and over again, as we go through Hebrews, we focus on God's revelation. God has spoken. God has said. God has revealed. These are the oracles of God. Again and again and again, there's a reference to God speaking. And because God has spoken, there is a necessary response on our part to be obedient to what he has said that we are not just sit there and go, oh, isn't that interesting, God spoke. Well, let's go into the classroom and talk about this and bandy it about and see what our opinions are about it. No, when God speaks, we're to respond. It's like that commercial they had for for um, one of the um, stockbroker firms. You know, when, when they speak, everybody listens. Well, it's sort of like when God speaks, everybody's supposed to respond and respond in obedience. So the emphasis is on God speaking. He has spoken in times past to the fathers and to the prophets, and he has spoken now in his Son. And the emphasis there and the implication is that his speaking now is something that is final and complete. It has been uh, that, that revelation process has been completed. The rest of the prelude introduces the basic themes related to the Son, that He created all things, that He has purged us from sin, cleansed us from sin. He has ascended in heaven in victory, where He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father above the angels, and this seating is related to His victory in His humanity, and that He is the future heir of all things. Verse 4, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So this session, this seating at the right hand of the Father, is going to then be related to his priesthood. But before the writer can get there, the first thing he has to establish is that Christ is superior to the angels. And that's the focus uh, in the first uh, section in chapter 1, 5 to 2, 4. So, 1, 5 to 2, 4 has a doctrinal ex- exposition. That should be 1, 5 to 14, not 1, 1 through 14. That's the doctrinal exposition of his deity and humanity. And the emphasis, though, is on his, is going to be on both of these. Psalm 2, 7 emphasizes his deity, his eternal sonship, which is quoted in verse 5, You are my son today. I have begotten you, and then it's connected to Psalm 89 at the second part of the verse, which relates to his humanity and his being the Davidic son. So these two things are brought together. And then in uh, verse 8, 
It emphasizes again his uh, deity that he is. It will be an eternal, uh, an eternal reign. And then in the second part of that section, in verses ten through twelve, it talks about how he'll be elevated up uh, because of the uh, plan of God that God, the Lord, laid the foundation of the earth, laid the plans. Verse verse ten, which is a quote from Psalm one hundred. Psalm 102. But the focal point of this is that in his humanity, in his sonship, in his humanity, he's qualified and he's elevated above the angels because in his deity, he's already there. But in his humanity, he has to go through this second qualification process, which when he passes the test, when he is buried, resurrected, ascended to heaven, then he is elevated over the angels in his humanity. And at the end of the chapter, we read, but to which of the angels has he ever said? And then we have a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1, which reads, a psalm of David. Now, I want you to watch this. I'm going to go ahead and connect it to Psalm 110.4 in this introduction so you can watch the how the theme develops. It's Psalm of David, the Lord, and the capital uppercase Lord there is referring to Yahweh. So that's referring to God the Father. The Lord said to my Lord, and that is Adonai in the second Lord. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the preincarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and and so the Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Now, we all know from English that when you have a second-person singular command, it assumes the presence of the second-person singular pronoun. So when I tell you to jump, what I've actually said is you jump. When I say leave, I'm actually saying you leave. So when uh, the the first person of the Trinity says to the second person of the Trinity, sit at my right hand, he's actually saying you sit at my right hand. Now, it's important to put that first you in there because we connect it to the second uh, use of the second person pronoun. You sit until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, we've identified that in the conversation in Psalm 110 that uh, the you is a reference to the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to Psalm 110.4, which is the key verse behind Psalm, I mean behind uh, 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 Hebrews chapter 7, dealing with the Melchizedekian priesthood, we read, The Lord, that is Yahweh, the first person of the Trinity, has sworn and will not relent. Quote, You, who's that you refer to? Second person singular, the Messianic Davidic king, the eternal second person of the Trinity. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the the point that we're bringing out here is that this shows from the exegesis of Psalm 110 that this other person is viewed as being fully divine in Psalm 110. You have a multiplicity of persons there in the Old Testament. You don't just have a singular deity. You have multiplicity of persons there. You have uh, two divine beings in conversation, and the second one is identified as becoming a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So it's the unpacking of that verse 
that's going to be significant in the book of Hebrews. So the first section closes with this reference to Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, and then you have the uh, practical exhortation and warning in chapter 2, right here, 2, 1 through 4. And 2, 1 through 4, there is a conclusion drawn, and that conclusion is a challenge to give strict attention to obedience lest we drift away. The default position of your sin nature is, is carnality and to go to drift away from doctrine. So whenever you stop walking by the Spirit, your gears, your spiritual gears shift into carnality and you automatically start drifting away. So there has to be attention given. We have to focus on our spiritual life. It's not something that's just going to happen. There has to be discipline, mental discipline. And the more I watch things today, I have heard within the last two weeks of so many cases of young people, and there's always been young people, teenagers who grow up, leave, go off to college, and go through, sort of sow their wild oats. But what we're seeing today is a level of, and I'm seeing, hearing more and more reports of this, where kids who grow up and are well-taught, well-grounded in apologetics, worldview, the whole thing, they leave, and by the time they hit in their 20s, they're off almost to the verge of, of neo-paganism and, and witchcraft. And there is just such an incredible amount of pressure in the culture and from the peers on these kids that they, they just feel so left out. You go into some parts of this country, and, you, and I've seen this with, with young ladies and, uh, shall we say, a little more mature ladies in their 30s and even 40s, trying to figure out if they're ever going to find a man who is a believer and positive to doctrine because they can barely even find other women who are positive to doctrine, much less a man. And so when you look at young, uh, young kids, teenagers, college-age kids growing up and then going off to college, they, they just feel like they're completely isolated, and it's very easy for that peer pressure to convince them that that Christianity and, and an intense devotion to, to doctrine is just not that important. And as soon as they do, their, their gears just slip into carnality, and it's, it doesn't take long at all, two or three months, and you don't even recognize them anymore. And that was what the apostle was warning right here, that not to, uh, you have to give more earnest attention to the things that we have heard less we drift away, and he gives an example from the Old Testament, and he goes to Sinai and says, look at the, the Mosaic Law. If the Jews who had the Mosaic Law were rebellious and were disciplined in such an extreme manner in, in coming out of the wilderness that they weren't allowed to enter into the promised land, how much more will we who have such a greater salvation, i.e. inheritance, remember we're defining the word uh, salvation having to do with that uh, end result, salvation, deliverance, the full-orbed manifestation of everything we get with our uh, justification, that how much more we will be accountable when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. From there we go to section 2. Section 2 extends from 2.5 down through 4.13. 
There are two divisions in this section. There is the doctrinal exposition or the pedagogical uh, development in 2.5 to 3.6. And then this is followed by a much lengthier practical exhortation and warning in 3.7 to 4.13. As we go through this, we see these themes begin to be developed a little bit more. See an emphasis on the sun being made lower than the angels. He's already been indicated that he's elevated at the ascension above the angels, but now the writer goes back in his in his logic and says he's created lower than the angels in his deity. He was over the angels, then he's lower than the angels. And why was it necessary for him in his humanity to go through all of this kind of testing? And in verse 10 he writes, For it was fitting for him, that is the Father, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. The many sons to glory are the church-age believers. So what he is saying is it's fitting in order to bring you to your maturation point so that you can be a successful co-ruler with Jesus Christ in the millennium. In order to do that, it was necessary for the captain of our salvation to be perfected, that is, to be brought to completion through suffering. So he sets the standard and he blazes the trail for us, and he has to go through the same kinds of suffering, the same kind of testing, the same kind of temptation that we do, yet without sin. Now that comes up at the beginning of the next section, so you see how each section sort of builds on the sections before. Then we come to... Uh, Hebrews 2.17 and 18. At the conclusion of this little uh, t- uh, section, he says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Why? That he might be a m- merciful and faithful high priest. Now, look back to verse 10. He, he had to go through this process of being perfected through suffering. And you connect that with the fact that he, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest because he's been tested in all things as we are. So his, he had to be made like us. He had to live his life on the earth in his humanity as a human being. Now that brings up an interesting question about that I've been thinking through more and more dealing with the hypostatic union. We think about the hypostatic union and I've talked to some degree about this already, you have the two natures in Christ, but it's one person, it's one individual. He's not, he's not schizo, he's not saying, okay, I'm over here today, and now I'm over here, let's go back over here and be divine, now let's go over here and be human. It's one person, so everything's coming out of one person, but he has two natures. One is undiminished deity, and the other is true humanity. He's always got both of these natures there, but somehow, and this is the issue with the kenosis in uh, in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, where he uh, is translated where he gives, he did not think of robbery to be thought equal to God, but he gave up his attributes. He doesn't give them up. He willingly restricts them. Okay, now, a question came up when we were at the ordination this last week. The standard question was to find the hypostatic union. 
And the answer that was given by by uh, David was a standard answer that that you find in uh, like uh, Jesus Christ our Lord, John Walvoord's book on Christology, or any number of other classic works on Christology that uh, Christ willingly gave up the independent use of his eternal attributes. And uh, after he gave the definition, I said, "Okay, David, tell me when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity." ever used his attributes independently of the Father's will. Never did. So that's really not a good definition, but it's one we've all heard and, and one that's been used again and again and again for, for, if not, for decades, if not centuries. So what we have to think through is what's really going on with the hypostatic union is that, that Jesus willingly sort of blocks off his deity he accesses that, that, those divine attributes when it's important to demonstrate his divine credentials and who he is as the Messiah, as the predicted Son of God. Because remember, in the Old Testament, you have all those passages like Psalm 110.1, 110.4, Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, all of which indicate that the Messiah is going to be fully God. He's going to be called eternal God. He's going to uh, be, they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, Micah 5.2, he'll be born in Bethlehem. He whose goings forth are of old, eternality, he'll be born in Bethlehem. So it, he, he demonstrates that he's divine through the use of certain divine attributes, but he only accesses his deity to demonstrate his credentials. He never accesses his deity to solve the problems in his humanity, to deal with the weakness of the flesh in terms of just his, his limitations of his humanity. When we, we did that study a couple of weeks ago in Genesis, when we were dealing with, with sorrow and grief and dealing with funerals and, and the loss of a loved one, and I traced the use of the various compounds of lupeo, and how antilupeo is used to intensify, as an intensified grief and sorrow and anguish that Jesus is going through when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's probably the closest he ever came to giving up because the pressure was so intense, but he had to pass the test without being strengthened by his deity. Because that was the whole point, that he was going to solve all of his problems and handle all the testing on his own as a man in contrast to Adam, the first Adam, who failed and who uh, gave up and acted independently of God. So Jesus has to handle all of these things in his humanity. That means that he can now be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, that is the spiritual life starting with salvation, making propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are also tested. Now that takes us through, just emphasizes a few of these themes related to priesthood that we see in the teaching portion, the or the um, uh, doctrinal exposition part of that particular section. Then in verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 7, down to 4.13, we have this long section dealing with uh, 
the, the challenge of listening to God's word. And the centerpiece of this is a threefold, um, and if you add verse 13, almost a fourfold repetition of the idea from Psalm 95, 7 and 8. Picking up at the last phrase, just that last part of the sentence, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as is in the day of trial of the wilderness. Do not, if you will hear his voice. It takes us back to chapter 1, verse 1. God has spoken in these last days. God has spoken by the prophets and the fathers. So if he has spoken, our response is not to harden our hearts to that. And this, this uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 95 is an indictment on Israel for their failure at, in the wilderness in general and at Kadesh Barnea specifically because they failed to trust God and to rest in his provision so that they can then enter into their promised rest which is entry into the uh, in, in, into the land, into the promised land, and so they failed to do that. That leads to the next section, which begins in 4:14. You have a doctrinal exposition in 4:15 to 5:10, and then a lengthy practical exhortation from 5:11 to 6:20, and embedded in the middle of that is a short warning section. Now it begins in verse 14. Begins in verse 14 with the statement, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What is he doing there? He's going back and picking up that theme that he ended with, the, the previous didactic section with, in verses 17 and 18, talking about the high priest. So he goes back, he picks up the thread of the high priest, he picks up the ascension, he passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, then we have an exhortation, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So he's unpacking this whole doctrine of the high, priest, uh, high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he begins an exposition of the high, high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he connects that to Melchizedek in verse 6. He quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4. And then he breaks off, in verse 10, he says, He is called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I have much to say about this. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. So he didn't get very far into the topic, and he broke off in order to uh, challenge them and to warn them because they've become sluggish and dull of hearing because they didn't take their spiritual life seriously enough. And so they slipped into... Uh, carnality gear and they're veering way off course and he has to grab their attention and warn them about the dangerous consequences of what's going to happen if they are off course. That if they continue, they'll even end up in the sin unto death. 
So we have this lengthy section from 512 down through the end of chapter 6, in the midst of which is that uh, very well-known, very famous warning section in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. All of this simply challenges them to the fact that there are real and serious consequences to failure in the spiritual life. It's not that you'll lose your salvation, but there's tremendous damage that's done both in time and then and in eternity. Okay, well, that brings us now to section 4, which is uh, chapter 7, verse 1 through 1039. So we have four chapters to deal with, and uh, they're not going to be the kind of chapters for the most part that we get mired down in a lot of technical uh, exegesis. So there's a lot of narrative here, and there's also some sort of what I would call filler verses that we'll get into because the standard uh, standard process and and uh, apparently in Jewish uh, Jewish commentary is that if they wanted to quote a passage to make a point rather than just quoting the first part of it they would quote the entire passage simply to make a point out of one phrase so in chapter 8 when he said when he has this lengthy quote of the new covenant passage from Jeremiah 31 he quotes the whole passage but the only point he's making is that the term new covenant implies that the older covenant was temporary and was all, always designed to be replaced. That's it. That's the only point he's making from a, about a five-verse quotation. But we'll, of course, take our time going through it to make sure we understand the new covenant. Okay, let's look at chapter 7. The section is going to emphasize the necessity of a new high priest, a high priest that has to be superior to the priestly ministry that was part of the Mosaic law, that the Aaronic high priesthood and the Levitical priesthood was tied to the Mosaic law, and the Mosaic law was intended to be temporary. It had limitations. It was designed to provide a priesthood only for the Jews, because the Jews had come to Mount Sinai. God had said there in Exodus 19 that he was going to make of them a a kingdom of priests. But even as God was speaking to them from Mount Sinai, they uh, cowered in fear and said, oh, we can't listen to the voice of God, so uh, let's send Moses up there as an intermediary, and he can talk to Moses, and then Moses can talk to us. In other words, the people don't want to, as a nation, rejected the idea of being a priestly nation. They wanted to have a subcategory to be the intercessor for them, and this is where God sets up in the Mosaic Law the uh, intercessory ministry of the Levitical priesthood as a uh, in relationship to their rejection. So we have a, an ex, a development of the limitations of the Levitical priesthood in this section. So we have a doctrinal exposition from 7.1 through 10.18, and then we have 21 verses of warning from 10.19, or 20 verses from 10.19 to 10.39. And that will be a uh, rugged exposition going through that particular warning. That's uh, as almost as tough a warning as the warning we dealt with in uh, chapter 6. So we get into that section and uh, deal with that.
Okay, that takes us through our orientation so far. So we come to Hebrews 7.1, and it's a contrast between the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Aaron. Let me just remind you of some things that we covered already in relationship to the Levitical priesthood in contrast to Christ's priesthood. Point number one, the Levitical priesthood was based on tribal relationship to Levi. The Aaronic high priesthood was based on direct descent from Aaron. So the only qualification, well, not the only qualification, your base qualification is physical. It's not spiritual. You can read through uh, the passages and numbers that give the qualifications for the priests, and it never talks about their spiritual status. It never talks about whether or not they're regenerated, saved, justified, their faith, anything. It, the only qualification has to do with their age. It has to do with the fact that they have, they're free from certain physical defects and that they are related to Levi, and for the Aaronic priests, they have to be a direct descendant of Aaron. So it's based on genetics and their tribal relationship uh, to Levi. Second thing is, in terms of background is Jesus Christ is not from the tribe of Levi. He is from the tribe of Judah, the line of David, and thus he's not qualified according to the Mosaic law to serve as a priest. This is a point that is made in Verse 13 of this chapter, For he, that is Jesus, for he of whom these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. The, it's the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, was from another tribe, and the tribe of Judah could not officiate at the altar. So it had to be based on something else. So Jesus Christ was from the tribe of, of Judah, the line of David, couldn't serve in the, in the uh, temple. Third point, the Levitical priesthood was designed and intended to be a limited priesthood. It was limited in ter- terms of the time in which it would be active, and it was limited in terms of to the, the, the people to whom it applied. It didn't apply to Gentiles. It only applied to Jews. Gentiles had a, another basis unless they became a proselyte within Judaism Gentiles had access to God separately under the Noahic covenant and patriarchal, uh, the more ancient patriarchal priesthood. So the Levitical priesthood was went into effect at Mount Sinai, 1446 B.C., and it ends at the cross. That's your time period. That it was designed as part of a limited covenant. Now, see, it's almost teaching the next chapter. The point of the next chapter is that because the the next covenant is called the New Covenant, it implies that the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was intended to be temporary. And this is really better terminology. We've all heard, and I've used it for for ages, the the clarification that you uh, you have unconditional and conditional covenants. But there are conditions even within the unconditional covenant. God told Abraham that I'm going to give you this land. But the Jews weren't going to be allowed to live in the land and reap the blessings of the land if they weren't obedient. There's a condition there. And that condition will be met at the end of the uh, tribulation period when they call upon Jesus as their Messiah to come and deliver them. And then they will enter into the kingdom 
and enjoy the blessing of the land on the condition that they're all saved. And so it's, there, there are those conditions there, but a better term to distinguish the Mosaic covenant from all the other covenants is the term temporary. It had a temporary nature, a temporary purpose, and it was never intended to go on forever. It was intended to be replaced by the new covenant. So the Levitical priesthood, as the priesthood related to the Mosaic covenant, is limited in time and extent. It's only for the Jews. It's a part of the temporary Mosaic law, and Therefore, it is not for all time. It's not universal. It is only a uh, narrow priesthood. Fourth, for the Messiah to come and have a universal priesthood, which is what is predicted. This is the, see, the, the, if you look at in your Bible, the next section starts in verse 11, goes down to verse 19, but right in the middle of verse, verse 17, which is a quote from Psalm 110.4, that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That, as we've already seen, is God the Father talking to God the Son in the pre-incarnate period saying, you will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So in order for the Messiah to have a universal priesthood that would apply to all mankind, then it had to have, have a different base than a Jewish race-based priesthood. Fifth, the Melchizedekian priesthood was a royal high priesthood that is universal in space and time. It is for all mankind, not just for Jews. So it's not based on ethnic qualifications, but on spiritual qualifications. And it is a royal high priesthood because Melchizedek, of course, was the uh, king priest of Salem. Sixth, the writer of Hebrews refers to this as the pattern for the priesthood of Jesus Christ. For this Verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Melchizedek is a picture by analogy of the source of blessing. and But it is to, I mean, to Melchizedek that Abraham gave a tenth. He's not required to. It is a grace offering. 10% just happened to be the uh, round figure that most people used in the ancient world. There was nothing uh, magical or mystical uh, about 10%. It was just a standard round number. And this is you, there's evidence throughout the ancient world that this was uh, a standard number in, in many different cases for taxes, property taxes, uh, different kind of religious uh, taxes as well. It's just a, a tenth. And so Abraham gives that to Melchizedek, and that shows that Abraham, who is the father of the Jews as a people, that he is views himself spiritually as in, inferior to Melchizedek. Now that's important to understand because any priesthood that derives from from Abraham would also be viewed as being inferior to Melchizedek. And that's where we get, the, that's the, the thrust of this whole initial section. Talks about Melchizedek, that he was 
without father, without mother, without genealogy. That is not saying, we'll go over this one more time, that's not saying that he didn't have parents. There's only one person in the Bible who didn't have any parents other than Adam. And that was Joshua, the son of Nun. (laughs) Melchizedek was without father and without mother in the genealogical record. We don't know who his parents were. There's no indication in the canon of Scripture as to who his parents were. He was without genealogy. Why? Because he's not in the line of the seed. The genealogies in Genesis deal with tracing the line of the seed from Adam to Noah and from Noah to Terah and from Terah down to Joseph. But Melchizedek isn't in the line, so there's no genealogy. We don't know who is parent. We don't need to know. It's irrelevant to the purpose of Genesis. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. In other words, the geneal- there's no genealogy, so there's no record of when he was born or when he died. Not that he wasn't born or that he didn't die. Melchizedek is not some uh, pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's always some people who come along and, and think that's what this means. He's, he's, not, he's made like the Son of God in terms of this literary analogy. And so he becomes the uh, forerunner in terms of his, his the prototype for this royal this royal priesthood verse 4 4 through 11 focuses on the greatness of Melchizedek now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils now this is what he's unpacking this is his purpose of focusing on Melchizedek. Abraham gave uh, these tithes, gave, gave 10%, paid tribute to his superior. Verse 5, And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who is a great-grandson of Abraham, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, So they've come from the loins of Abraham. They're set up over the rest of the Jews as the spiritual representative of God. Therefore, they are to receive the tithes. But, verse 6, whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. The point is, whose genealogy is not derived from them is Melchizedek. So he makes the point in verse 8. Mortal men receive tithes, But there, that is, in that instance with Melchizedek, he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. That is, that Melchizedek lived. And so he drives home the point in verses 9 and 10, even Levi, who receives tithes. Now, Levi never received tithes. Only his descendants did some uh, three or four hundred years later at the time of the Exodus and the giving of the law, only then did you have any kind of tithing or priesthood set up. So Levi didn't literally receive tithes. That's just a, uh, uh, he, he is simply set up as a uh, metonymy of source. Uh, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. Was that it? We get to verse 10? No, I left out verse 10. He. 
no slide for verse 10. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And that last phrase has to be understood in light of the phrase, so to speak, or in a manner of speaking, or figuratively speaking, he's still in the loins of his father. He's simply drawing the physical connection that if the grand, that if the father is inferior to someone, then the grandson is inferior. And that's the simple point that is being made here. Then we get to verse 11. Therefore, conclusion, if perfection... Now, this passage is going to set up an argument. It starts with what is called a first-class condition in the Greek, which we usually understand to mean if and the speaker assumes it to be true. Now, he can assume it to be true, and it may not be true. He can assume it to be true, and it is true, He can assume it to be true for the sake of argument, and that's how it's set up in a debate. And that's the kind of uh, first-class condition we have here. Therefore, assuming, he is saying, that perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, but it didn't. That's the point of the parenthesis. For under it, the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek? See, why we, what he's saying is, why would we need another priesthood if the first priesthood was sufficient? We could set it up in terms of a logical syllogism this way. P1 is your first proposition. If completion came, but it didn't, but if completion came, assuming it did, uh, came through the Levitical priesthood, there would be no need of another priesthood. Now, who's he addressing? Remember, he's addressing, we believe, mostly converted Levites. And they're tempted to go back to all of the pomp and circumstance and all of the ritual of the temple from their own Jewish, um, from their own G- Jewish patriotism. We believe that the writer wrote this in that era around 62 to 66 A.D., just before the Jewish revolt, when there was just this maelstrom of, of Jewish patriotism going on against the Romans, and there's all this rebellion that's being fomented, and so there's pressure there that you guys were Levites and you become Christians, you're anti-Jewish now. And so there's cultural pressure on them to give up their Christianity for, for patriotic reasons and to come back into the fold, as it were. And it was a time of tremendous division uh, among, the, uh, among the Jews. They, they were fighting each other more than they were fighting the Romans. You had the Zealots, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, you had all these many other different groups and subgroups, and they were all fighting each other. It was just a time of incredible arrogance and this is why they couldn't unite against a common enemy. When you look at how much they did to defend against the Romans, and they were that divided, we can only imagine what they would have done. They would never have been defeated by the Romans if they hadn't been that divided at their core. So he's writing to these Levites, and he's saying, look, you have to understand this. If completion had come through the Levitical priesthood, there would be no need of another priesthood. Proposition 2, 
Completion did not come through the Levitical priesthood. We know that because Jesus Christ is the final completion of all the prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. What's the conclusion? Therefore, another superior priesthood was intended and necessary. And this is why in verse 17, he's going to, he's going to quote from Psalm 110.4 to show that from the Old Testament, from the time of David, it was understood that another order of priest would be necessary according to the order of Melchizedek, not the, not the order of Aaron or the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law had a purpose, but it was not a purpose that was related to salvation or a purpose that was, that was permanent. Last time we looked at a couple of references in Romans related to the purpose of the law, and there are basically uh, three. First of all, it was to expose sin in Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the first thing that happens is the law exposes the fact that we just can't do it. It's impossible. Man is incapable of living up to God's standard. Other verses we looked at were Romans 7.5 and Romans 7.7. 7. The law was also given to reveal man's inability to measure up to God's standard. In Romans 7.9, Paul said, I was alive once without the law. What he's saying is, I thought I was alive. But once I really understood the law when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I realized I was a sinner and that I was dead. And then the purpose of the law was to reveal man's spiritual death. Uh, Romans 7.13 Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me. That spiritual death, not physical death. It is, it is revealing. It's not producing. And he's already spiritually dead. It's producing a knowledge of that death in him. And that's how you have to understand uh, Romans chapter 7. So the law was not given for salvation, but to expose sin, to expose man's inability, and to reveal the fact that man was spiritually dead. Okay, we made it into uh, Hebrews 7.11. Next time we'll deal with the change of the priesthood and the necessity of that, getting into probably the rest of this particular section. Uh, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to recognize that we have a high priest who is without sin, who has been tested in all points as we are, a high priest who is even now making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. Father, may we not forget this and realize that because of his intercession, we can always come boldly before your throne of grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.